Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm glad to be back with my friend David Wheaton today to get things started. We're going to continue our study uh, on how epic Exodus displays the awesome God. We're already in Exodus 13 and 14, the parting of the Red Sea. I can hardly wait to get to this topic. David, of course, is an incredible uh, speaker, writer, blogger, presenter, radio host. TheChristianWorldview.org is where to go learn more about David. David, welcome. Thank you, Bill. Always good to be with you. No kidding. I love it. Let's, uh, before we jump in, let's uh, look at some of the important points from the last time we chatted. Yeah, I thought it would be good to actually do sort of a two-part review, because this portion of Exodus that we're talking about right now, and last time we talked about Exodus chapter 11 and 12, is really one of the most significant parts of the entire Bible. I know it's a big statement, but I think it's absolutely the case. You look at you know, the early parts of Genesis, we, we find out that there is a God, He exists, and He has spoken, you know, right there in the beginning of Genesis 1. And now, in, in Exodus here, uh, we find out through these, the, the plagues, and then God bringing His people out of slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land, we not only find out about God's delivering power, but also about the, the means of salvation, the, the shedding of blood and the Passover lamb back then, and how that foreshadowed Christ coming in the future. I mean, this is a most significant portion of Scripture. So the last time we talked about this 10th plague, they've gone through nine plagues, and still Pharaoh's heart is hard, and he won't let the people go and worship as Moses has been telling them, telling Pharaoh to let my people go. So God previews the 10th plague uh, in the last time we we talked. And the 10th plague was what I would call the super plague. This is going to be the one that when this one happens, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are just going to say, get out of here. This is just way too much for us to handle. And this is the death of the firstborn, what's going to happen. And God actually declares what he's going to do with this plague. He's, he's going to kill the firstborn uh, of all Egyptians, from Pharaoh's house to the most meaningful slave in the the country, but but not of Israel, by the way, for those who put this blood of the Passover lamb over the doorposts of their house. And God is going to be the one who's going to be the destroyer here. And you just think that is so jarring to even think about, because so often today in evangelicalism and elsewhere, we, we don't think of God who is a God of, of judgment like this. But this is the real God that the Bible portrays him to me. This is a God of judgment, who is also, by the way, a God of mercy. He's both. It's two sides of the same coin. And so in this, these chapters we went over last time, we see this, this God of judgment. In other words, he's a judging God for those who reject him and don't believe him by faith, but he's a merciful God. He saves those who do believe in him. And so we see right there in Exodus 11 from last time, he says, one more plague I, I will bring on Pharaoh. This isn't some other person doing this. This is God himself. He says, about midnight, I am going out. This is God talking. I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind 
the millstones, but he says, but against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark. And so there's going to be this distinction here. And he then tells Israel how they can be saved from God's judgment. And interestingly enough, it's not by doing something, like doing a good work. It's by faith that they're saved. I mean, it makes no sense what God tells them to do. Take a take an unblemished lamb, or uh, yeah, an unblemished lamb, a, a male, a year old, keep it in your house to the 14th day of the month, and then kill it at twilight, and put some of the blood of it on the doorposts of your house, so that when God goes over during this last plague, he passes over those houses that have the blood on the doorposts. I mean, this makes no sense at all. This is a total by faith thing. There's no something scientific that blood on the doorposts of your house is going to save you from God's judgment. So those who obeyed by faith, who trusted God as at his word, were the ones that God passed over and didn't bring judgment on their house. And again, this was a a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, the blood that he shed that streamed down that wooden cross that takes away the sins of the world, that covers our sin when we put our faith in who he is and what he did for us on the cross. Mm. Powerful reminder, David, and thank you for reminding us um, that we we live by faith, and some, some of the things that God has for us to do may not make a world of sense to us, but we need to be obedient. It's very true, and I think it also bears repeating just the, the, the how the sacrifice of this this Passover lamb, this this is the first Passover, the institution of that feast, mm-hmm. that is still, by the way, celebrated today, memorialized today by sure. Jews all over the world and by many Christians as well, how that Passover sacrifice, the first one, related so closely. It was just a complete foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ. I just, I jotted down seven things, and there's more than this. This is so profound, it's way beyond what I could explain to anyone, but just seven things. Each household, number one, was to take a lamb. And what was Christ called? Christ was called, John the Baptist said, here's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Number two, the lamb must be an unblemished male, a year old. Well, what was Christ? He was a perfect, unblemished, sinless, spotless lamb as well. Number three, this lamb would remain in the house for four days and be killed at twilight. Number, And this is exactly what happened to Christ. He was with his people for a time. He was crucified right during Passover, thousands of years later here, exactly when the other Passover lambs are being sacrificed. Number four, some of the blood of this lamb would be put on the doorposts, as we talked about. Number in for Christ, his blood was streaming down that wooden cross, just like it would be on the doorposts. Number five, no bones were to be broken of this Passover lamb. That was the instructions by God. Not a bone of Christ was broken on the cross. Number six, having the faith to put the blood of the lambs on the doorposts of the house would cause God to pass over that house so their firstborn wouldn't be killed, just as faith in the blood of Christ to cover our sins causes God to pass over judging us and sending us to hell. And finally, the seventh thing I wrote down was the result of physical, the result of this Passover lamb was physical deliverance from slavery in Egypt. This is how they got driven out of Egypt. They were freed from their bondage to the Egyptians. Well, the result of Christ's sacrifice was spiritual deliverance or rescue from our slavery to sin and gave us reconciliation to God. So just point by point, Bill, you look at the comparison, 
and how these relate to each other. And it's just amazing. Oh, that's so strong. That's so good. Thank you for that work that you did on that, David. Let's uh, look at um, Exodus 13, and maybe we can chat about the emphasis on remembering the Exodus and Passover, uh, obviously something that's not to be forgotten, right? Absolutely. And we see right as we turn the page and get into what, you know, the new content for the day, going from Exodus 11 and 12 to now Exodus 13 and 14, the entire chapter of Exodus 13 isn't that long, but the theme of the whole chapter is about remembering. And you you see this um, regularly in Scripture. There's so much emphasis on remembering significant things. And like I said, it's impossible to overstate the significance of what just occurred in these plagues, and especially the super plague, the, the Passover that turned into the passport, the death of the firstborn. And what what these Jewish people were going to know was that the wages of sin is death. They'd see that Passover lamb, they'd understand that the death or the substitution for them. In other words, this lamb died, some of the blood went on the doorpost, so that we wouldn't be judged, right, in this in this Passover, the, the judgment that when God passed over the land. So they learned about substitution, that someone, something else, in this case, something else, a lamb, died so we wouldn't be judged. They learned, they learned that, like Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So they learned about substitution. This lamb died so we wouldn't be judged. But they also learned about justification by faith. And again, it was just faith making no scientific reason why putting you know blood over the doorpost of your house was going to save you from this judgment. But it was trust in God at his word. And this is what we're called to do today. We're, we're called to believe in in God at his word and what he's revealed to us. He's He's told us about himself. He's told us about his son and who he is, that he's the only son of God. He's the perfect lamb of God. And his sacrifice on the on the cross is the, the only and ultimate sacrifice, like an only thing that can pay the penalty for our sin so that we don't have to pay the penalty for our own sin, he's offering us this as a gift. And all we must do is receive this gift and not reject it and believe it by faith. So they, they learned so many things in this particular moment in history, and they wanted it, and God wanted it to be remembered. And so there's so much emphasis in this chapter 13 of Exodus on remembering the Exodus and remembering the Passover. And all throughout that chapter, tell your sons about this. When your son asks you about this, tell them this. You know, and, and tell them about the, the meaning and the significance behind this. It was to be a memorial or a reminder for succeeding generations to be celebrated annually. And this is literally, like we said, it's still being done today, thousands of years later, because things are very quickly lost if they're not intentionally passed down. And this is what happens in Christian families all the time. You have, you know, the first generation, let's say, of parents who come to saving faith, and somehow it just doesn't get communicated or somehow gets lost. Now, everyone must come to saving faith on your own. You can't literally pass your faith down and give it to someone. Everyone must come before the Lord by themselves in repentant faith. But we are still called, as it says in Deuteronomy 6 in the Shema, to teach your sons dil- diligently and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and your frontals on your forehead you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates he's talking about the word of god in other words keep communicating the 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 principles 
the gospel, the things of the word and of God to your children, lest they be forgotten and lest they go away from the Lord. Yeah. In other words, David, we have to be reminded to be intentional and to not assume that it's going to all sink in, but we have to in uh, be very intentional and repeat ourselves often. Well, just think about it, how just you and I are, anyone listening today is, you know, strong impressions that happen to us or lessons in life, right? no matter how strong they are, they became a little, they become a little fuzzy over time. They're they're replaced by the stronger impressions of the present. And so this is sort of a negative and positive thing in, 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 uh, from a, a, a negative standpoint, we often forget the things we need to remember, but in the positive sense, it's almost God in his goodness that helps us have things that are really painful for us, really hard, maybe the death of a relative or whatever, that aren't quite as painful as time goes on because it becomes a little more in the past. And so we're just made this way that we need regular reminders of the important things. That's why we have to read the Word of God on a regular basis. I think eating food is the example for this. Why did God design us to have to eat two or three meals a day? Because we have to rely on Him. We need to be be regularly fed physically. I think it's the same thing spiritually as well. God designed us to have to be regularly reminded of the spiritual things of of Him and His Word that we need to take in on a regular basis, lest we should forget. Yeah, it's two or three meals a day, unless it's your brother Mark. That's uh, right. Who's discovered a meal? Six be- or seven, right? Who's discovered a meal between breakfast and brunch? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, let me take a little break, uh, David. What, if it's so important to remember the Exodus and the Passover. When I come back, I want to ask you, why did the Egyptians so quickly forget then? All right, David Wheaton is my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org. We'll be right back. and you hear that music, I bet you think, huh, I bet his guest is David Wheaton. And if you guessed that, you'd be right. We're continuing our study on Exodus and our series title, which we'll be in for quite a while. is called How Epic Exodus Displays the Awesome God. And uh, David, right before we went to break, I asked you about if there's so much emphasis on remembering the Exodus and the Passover, and that's something that, that couldn't be forgotten. So mm. how and why did the Egyptians so quickly forget? Yeah, and that's why we titled it Epic Exodus, because this is epic. I mean, these plagues, supernatural plagues happening, and, you know, the Passover, I mean, death coming upon the land, and God passing over the the Jewish households with the blood on the the doorpost, and then something else epic coming up now, the parting of the Red Sea. You think, you know, this just cannot be easily forgotten, but interestingly enough, and just actually more than interesting, astoundingly enough, it's, it's both sides forget. The, the Egyptians have very short-term memories of what they have just gone through with these 10 plagues, and then the Jews are going to do the same when the Egyptians come you know, running after them, trying to bring them back. But first to the Egyptians in Exodus 14, I mean, you can't even make this up. There's no explanation by, by now why Pharaoh and the Egyptians would change their minds about, we can't let these, these Jews leave the land. They were our economic engine building our cities and doing everything else. Well, that, that's what happens. And and start, Exodus 14 starts up by saying, The Lord said to, to Moses, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp at this particular place. He said, For Pharaoh will say 
of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. They, they didn't go the direction Pharaoh thought they were going to go, so he thought they must be lost. And so he says they, they must be wandering aimlessly out there. The wilderness just shut them in. And then God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And that's the whole point of this whole thing. Why did he have to go through 10 plagues? It is God bringing glory to himself, even through the actions of non-believers. Mm. And so he makes his chariots ready, Pharaoh and his servants, and they're going to go try to bring the, the Jews back forcefully. And they go out, and it says again, this the same path, the same phrase we've gone over so many weeks, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he chased after the sons of Israel as Israel was going out, and the Egyptians chased after them, and all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea. So just imagine there's two million Israelites camping by the sea trying to figure out how to get across the Red Sea. That's where they're camped, and then all of a sudden behind them, here they come, the Egyptian army, all of them, highly trained chariots and so forth, they're going to come and bring them back. And you just think, what on earth are they thinking? They've lost everything. They've just lost their firstborn in every household in the land. This is like the, 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 Bible, the Bible verse that says, you know, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. I mean, this has been foolishness, what Pharaoh has been doing and not relenting and repenting uh, to let the people go out of the land. But here he is, just, I'm not sure how much time elapsed, maybe a few days, maybe a week or two elapsed, and here he is chasing after the, 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 the nation of Israel to bring them home. I mean, does he really think, after all that's transpired, that he's really going to win this time? Yeah, it's a great point. Great point. So how does God save Israel this time? Well, before that, Let's talk about how the Jews quickly forget. Oh, good because point. Because not only have the Egyptians forgotten something, just that happens. So you know, like, don't play around with this God. Obey Him. Now the Jews, the same thing though. When they see the the Egyptians racing at them in chariots, they immediately are scared out of their wits. And then they say to Moses, "Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness?" Uh, why have you dealt with us this way and bringing us out of Egypt? And these are the same people that were screaming and moaning that they were enslaved and <laughs> anything. Just get us out of Egypt. Now they're saying, we want to go back to Egypt. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, they say, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. I mean, what are, what are they thinking? Have, have they forgotten all that God has just done for them, all the plagues, save them from the super plague, the 10th plague of the firstborn, leading them out miraculously, plundered the Egyptians when they left. They've been, they're being led by a, a pillar of cloud by, by day and a pillar of fire. I mean, they're seeing all of this, and yet now they're, they're really blaming and almost slandering God here, like he brought us out here just to kill us. So it's really wow. incredible how quickly both sides— had forgotten just who this God was that was orchestrating all these events. And this is complaining. This is when we complain, we're, we basically are showing that we don't trust God. And this is just a preview of what is to come during their, their what will become 40 years of wanderings around in the desert before they get to the promised land. So much complaining, so much doubt about who God is, and there's no reason they should, and there's no reason we should, when we know so much about God and what he has done for us 
that we should complain, but we do, unfortunately. Yeah, so short-term memory across the boards, uh, just about with everyone, isn't it? It, very much. Yeah. We, it's very much. I mean, this is the biggest yeah. thing. This is what God wants, created us to do, to be yeah. in cro- close relationship with us and to worship and obey him. And our, our heart, our fallen natures kind of tend away from that. Mm-hmm. Exodus fourteen thirteen says, but Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today for the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. I, yeah. lo- I love that verse. Exodus fourteen fourteen is such a powerful verse. It's very powerful, and God's going to save Israel again here. Mm-hmm. And it's going to do it in the most miraculous way, again, in an epic way. You know, during during the night, the, here comes the rushing Egyptian army. The Israelites are are camped. They're not battle ready, by the way. There's 2 million of them, 600,000 men, but they're not prepared. I mean, the Egyptian army would slaughter them with all their technology and their training and so forth. So they have no shot here. And so they're in a, a major problem. They're, they're hemmed in on all sides. They can't go anywhere. Their only chance of deliverance here is through God himself. And this is what happens. This pillar of cloud or pillar of fire goes goes from being in front of them to now going behind them. So it stands between the Egyptian army and the Israelites. It's there all night. And during the night, in rapid succession, I would encourage your listeners to read it because it's just an amazing narrative here, what happens in Exodus 14. Overnight, God causes a wind to come and divides the sea overnight. And then the, the Israelites walk through on dry ground through the through the Red Sea. The Egyptian army, of course, rushes in. Oh, this is great. We're going to go on dry ground, too. They rush in to pursue. God brings them into confusion. Their chariots aren't operating correctly. Then as Israel gets to the other side of the sea, God tells Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea. And, of course, the sea crashes in on the entire Egyptian army and says this in Exodus 14:28. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. And then the contrast is verse 29. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And this is a, a miracle that you know can't be explained or reproduced. This is just a supernatural event that God did. It is, you know, one of the most incredible things. It's referenced frequently in other parts of Scripture and the Psalms and the New Testament, that this was God on full display showing his omnipotent power to be able to deliver his people from those who would harm them. And this really needs to be our response. When we see God's creation, when we read about the acts of God, when we know about God's Son, we need to fear him, revere him, was what that word means, and we need to trust him and trust his son as our Savior and Lord, because we do serve this awesome God. Mm-hmm. David, I'm so thankful for you uh, and your family. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving tomorrow. I understand it's on a Thursday once again, so here we are. Thank you, Bill, and the same to you. David Wheaton's been my guest. Go to the ChristianWorldview.org to check out all about David there. We'll take a short break and be right back. Show with Bill Arno, drive time, drive time, the 
let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. Welcome back to the show. Reverend Percy McCray Jr. has uh, spent more than 20 years ministering to cancer patients and their caregivers at Cancer Treatment Centers of America. He recognizes that cancer care ministry is a special calling from God and considers faith a key. We love that about him. He's a survivor himself, an ordained minister. He's been pastoring since 1993, and he hosts a popular podcast called Health, Hope, and Inspiration. And here to unleash some love and shalom on us is uh, Reverend Percy McRae. Percy, welcome. Hello, sir. How are you? Well, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, as we know, November is Cancer Survivor Cancer Awareness Month, so we wanted to be making sure we're uh, paying attention to that and trying to gain some hope and resources and inspiration, and you're you're just the guy I want to talk to. Well, good. Well, let's do this. Absolutely. First of all, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story as a cancer survivor, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Two years ago now... uh, uh, two and a half years ago, I was diagnosed with early stage one uh, colon cancer, uh, was experiencing some irregularities with regard to symptoms from a digestion perspective and et cetera. And um, because of over spending over two decades of supporting cancer patients at their bedside, I just knew enough about this disease and symptoms not to ignore that. So I found a GI. I live in South Florida and um, asked to get a colonoscopy and an endoscopy and uh, did both of those. And sure enough, uh, they discovered a golf ball size a tumor on the uh, left side of my colon. And so uh, had that removed, I went to Cancer Treatment Centers of America, which of course is where I'm also employed and deployed with regard to the ministry work that I do and had that taken care of, surgically removed, had a third of my colon taken out. And so I tell people, you can just call me Reverend Semicolon. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, have healed up very well. Uh, As of today, I have no evidence of disease. And I am grateful um, for great clinical care, but also for knowing the great I am and uh, being able to lean in on my faith as I worked through that challenge after now over two decades of supporting cancer patients. And so I today to declare that God is good and he's faithful. Oh, amen, Percy. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm glad that you had the uh, wisdom to say something ain't right. I'm going to get this checked out. And you got it at stage one. Yeah, I. Uh, it's, it's one of the big uh, speaking points with all of the things that I do with my podcast, uh, healthhopeandinspiration.com, as well as I help to facilitate a uh, cancer care leadership training program to local churches throughout, really throughout the world. We have over 3,000 churches that we've trained on how to start cancer care ministry. And that is to uh, recognize and not ignore your symptoms and go find some clinical response to that. Because with cancer, particularly, time can be of the essence. And in my particular case, uh, my GI and my surgeon said, had I waited maybe another six months, uh, I could have had a very different uh, diagnosis. Uh, my tumor did not break through my colon wall mm-hmm. at all. So it did not spread. It did not metastasize. It was contained, removed. And that's a big, big piece of this is acting as quickly as you can and getting in front of a cancer diagnosis as soon as possible. So Percy, let's 
talk about your your 20 plus years in cancer care ministry, uh, not only with uh, thousands of patients, but also their families and the all the dynamics that go along with people suffering from cancer and recovering and some not making it. And what is it like being bedside? Yes, it's a, it's a unique ministry. When I started, you know, actually, you know, over 25 years ago, um, I really had not much idea of, of what cancer care ministry was like in a healthcare setting. Uh, I went to Bible college to be a traditionally classically trained uh, pastor, uh, came from a family of pastors, etc., and uh, was really introduced to a whole new world of ministry that I think many people at that time certainly were not aware of, but today understand how prevalent you know cancer is with regard to uh, prognostication. According to the American Cancer Society, I believe the numbers are one in two women and one in three men are estimated to be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their lifetime. And many of those people are sitting inside of local churches and they are Christians and strong believers, but in some cases they have a void of support from a spiritual care perspective. And so being at the bedside with cancer patients really taught me that cancer care ministry is very unique, it's very specific, and it's very different than a kind of parish-based ministry. Uh, Because first and foremost, as you stated in your um, opening comments, you know, at, there are times that you lose cancer patients for various different reasons. They do not survive their journey. Of course, that those numbers have now dropped uh, precipitously over the last 30 years uh, to the tune of 31% that uh, more people are living uh, with a diagnosis of cancer than any time before. But it's understanding the unique mental, emotional, uh, and certainly spiritual needs of a cancer patient that can be challenging for those Uh, who are people of faith and trying to answer questions such as, you know, why me? And Lord, I've been serving you. I've been faithful and loyal. Uh, This doesn't seem fair or right. All of those unique dynamics dynamics are not something that you readily experience uh, inside of the local church. That's at the bedside of healthcare organizations where I've spent the last 25 years and understanding the unique travails and struggles of cancer patients. Mm-hmm. My guest is Reverend Percy McCray. We're uh, talking about his minister to uh, cancer patients and their caregivers. Percy, you've got a, a very warm and kind and invitational personality. Let me know what it would be like if I was in the bed and you came to my bedside. What would you uh, start saying to me and how would you uh, get the conversation going? Uh, First and foremost, as is the case at Cancer Treatment Centers of America, our policy and our protocol is uh, to make sure that we first gain permission of the patient uh, to begin to really have any type of significant conversation from a spiritual care perspective. But a typical engagement would begin with, obviously, introduction of who I am uh, and and why I am there and, and what do I bring to the table. We have Uh, what we call uh, personalized care at Cancer Treatment Centers of America and integrative uh, uh, support care. And part of that integrative model is spiritual support. But everybody is not necessarily open or ready for spiritual support. So the key to that is uh, is gaining common ground, uh, finding out who that individual is. You know, I'd ask you some questions about your background and what did you do for a living and, you know, uh, where did you come from and et cetera. And then I would probably engage you around uh, how have you been able to manage uh, or navigate the thought or the idea of being a cancer patient to allow the patient to feel 
that there is a vested interest in who they are as a human being, as a person. All humans want to know that you care about them first before you delve into any other more significant elements and conversations and, and titles and topics and subjects. And spirituality is certainly one of those areas that people need to believe that you truly are genuinely concerned about them as a human being before you kind of drive down that road. So I would really gain some common ground. You know, who am I? Who are you? Uh, what's your background? How did you feel and respond when you heard that you had cancer? And then a big, big important question, and I hope that people are, uh, may be taking some notes, will write this down, is ask the cancer patient, what do they need and what do they want? Mm -hmm. Very important because their needs and their wants may be very different. And, and you should not go in with a pre-inscribed idea of what you think those needs are. Ask the cancer patient. They'll tell you in most cases. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I'm glad to get a little bit of a, a background of you and your uh, history and journey. So let's get to um, the caregivers. And so if I wanted to be part of a caregiving ministry, well, what, uh, how would I start? First and foremost, uh, I would encourage everyone, and please write this down, go to health hope and inspiration and then our journey of hope.com our journey of hope.com that is uh the website for uh the free cancer care ministry that i nationally lead and direct i started it oh 18 years ago i believe and we've now trained churches uh across the world uh, well over 3,000 uh in europe asia africa canada south america uh the caribbean as well as the united states to sign up for our free uh, cancer care leadership training program. Mm, nice. Uh, yeah, it, with a, a curriculum, eight chapters, that basically helps to kind of unpack the whole conversation of what is cancer, uh, how to respond to people, what to say, when to say it, uh, how to react to uh, cancer care caregivers. Uh, we tend to forget about the caregivers that are taking care of the cancer patients, but the caregivers need care as well. And so we have an entire curriculum as well as a plethora of online resources that individuals who graduate from uh, our training uh, classes, again, all free of charge, we provide all of the materials and all of the curriculum uh, that you will have access to to start an effective cancer care ministry inside of your local church with bulletins, uh, how to make your logos, uh, uh, your uh, introductions, your announcements for your local church, all set up for you through this program, ourjourneyofhope.com. Register today and look for a date of training that you can attend online, virtually, via Zoom. Uh, and that will be the first starting point for anyone who's real serious about starting a cancer care ministry inside of their local church. All right. Percy, I want to take a little break, but when I come back, I do want to ask you about churches in America, you would know how, what percentage have a cancer care ministry and how important it is uh, inside a church to have one. And when I come back, that's the first question I have on the table. Uh, Reverend Percy McRae is my guest. He has uh, been involved in uh, cancer caregiving for over 20 years, and he's got quite a ministry. Uh, Health, Hope, and Inspiration is his uh, podcast. We'll take a short break and be right back.
Welcome back. My guest is Reverend Percy McRae. He has been involved in cancer care ministry for quite a while, over 20 plus years. He's been ministering to cancer patients and their caregivers at Cancer Treatment Centers of America. And he's got quite a powerful ministry. And Percy, right before we went to break, I was curious as to uh, how or what percentage of churches in America uh, have a cancer care ministry right in their church. Oh, I would say that that number is probably less than 5%. Oh, wow. And it's very, and yeah, it is. Um, and, and that's as a result of more and more churches that actually have started to adopt the idea that the, for the necessity for a cancer care ministry, and that's kind of the, maybe the stumbling block for some people, because still there is an inherent fear when people hear the term cancer. And uh, there is a reticence and a reluctance for people to want to enter into that space because quite frankly, of just uh, not having enough working knowledge around the topic and the subject. And so uh, it still is not a, a high priority on the list of ministries uh, inside of local churches. You know, the choir, the church, the children's church, mm-hmm. uh, the greeters, all of those folks, but still cancer care ministry as a focus, organized, structured kind of committee or group is still very small. And we're, and we're doing our level best to change that dynamic one church at a time. I would imagine some people would feel reluctant just to deal with an overwhelming amount of suffering suffering and grief that would be involved there. So if you're a cancer survivor, you probably have um, a much more uh, willing willingness to, to be involved in that person's uh, pain. I'm just... Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely correct, my friend. There is a certain level of mental and emotional uh, uh, equity that one has to uh, give to being part of a cancer care ministry. It's hard work, it's not easy, uh, and it can be emotionally taxing. Uh, one can experience uh, fatigue, you know, uh, a compassion fatigue, because in some cases, uh, cancer journeys of individuals can be long and arduous and complicated and difficult. And it's even more reason why we still need to make uh, the clarion call to the local church, uh, according to the word of God, that when uh, Jesus said that when you feed the naked, when you feed the hungry, clothe the naked, uh, take care of the sick. When you've done that unto the least of these, you've done these unto me. Uh, we're mandated basically uh, to to be part of the suffering of humanity as believers, uh, as an extension of the hands of God and the hands of Christ. And the cancer care community certainly falls into that category of many who struggle with finding uh, ample support and, and, and faithful, loving uh, encouragement uh, that could, in many cases, be a game changer in terms of the mental and the emotional outlook that one has when first told that they have cancer. So we've got work to do in that. In yeah. That part per- of that. yeah, Percy, I'm encouraged that you're offering uh, sound uh, support and helping people become, uh, equipping them to be better, uh, more informed caregivers. I would have I would imagine there are plenty of mistakes that churches and believers make in trying to care for people with cancer. That is true. Uh, unfortunately, it's true. The Bible says that my people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge, and, and that's a big dynamic. Uh, in some cases, we have pre-inscribed ideas about what is or isn't going on. You know, some mistakes that are made by, by really well-intended people is judging cancer patients with regard to why they have cancer. In some cases, uh, trying to associate a cause and effect, which can be very dangerous and 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 not helpful at the end of the day, 
because there are so many different moving components and contributing factors to, to what causes cancer. But one of the biggest mistakes that I've heard many uh, well-intended church members or goers say is it's because of sin in your life, particularly if a cancer patient, uh, for whatever reason, may not uh, uh, complete their, uh, their treatment and may succumb to that, that then they'll default to that. And that's just a terrible position to take and to, and to place upon as a burden upon uh, a cancer patient and or their caregivers uh, at the end of the day. So yes, there are some snafus that we can do better, we can be better. And it's one of the reasons why I felt led by the Holy Spirit 18 years ago. Uh, it's time for us to put something in place that will help uh, empower uh, the local church to do this better and be effective at it while still loving the, uh, the patient and still displaying the love of Christ to them as well. I have spoken to people who have gone through cancer and some of the um, responses they've received from people at church in an attempt to be super caring and super loving, but they will sometimes offer unsolicited uh, advice or they will, you know, go on to share stories of other people that went through similar cancer stories, some with happy endings and some with unhappy endings. And I'm, I'm not sure that's always helpful. What are your thoughts? No, you're absolutely correct. Uh, I just recently interviewed on uh, my podcast, Health, Hope, and Inspiration, located on healthhopeandinspiration.com, uh, a gentleman that I've known over 14 years. And when he was initially diagnosed with cancer, and he's given me permission to share his name, Reverend Daniel Horton, he said that he would not tell his church members that he had cancer because he was afraid of the very uh, dynamic that you just articulated, that uh, he was concerned that people... Uh, would say things to him that would not be helpful, would not be encouraging. And certainly in some cases, and I've seen this happen as well, uh, where people would share horror stories of previous cancer scenarios that at the end of the day, again, is not fair to that current cancer patient. Uh, all cancer diagnoses are different. All cancer pathways are different. And ultimately, at the end of the day, what may have been a scenario for one certainly is not necessarily the case for another. So there are just some things that, yeah, we need to understand and we can do better. And I am that guy. Uh, I, I took the lead on that. Our program is the leading program, uh, again, that's free of charge, available to help the church not make those kind of mistakes because they can be costly and they can definitely hamper uh, an individual's journey and process who are already struggling with regard to the dynamics of cancer. And we don't want to keep making those same mistakes, and I believe that God is holding us accountable for that. Mm. Percy, I know I've also talked to people, and it seems like an overwhelming majority, despite the fact they hated going through their cancer journey, when they came out on the other side, they did talk about some incredible blessings that, that were in their life. Um, and I would call them unexpected blessings because they never saw them coming. Uh, did you have some of those, and do you have some of those unexpected blessing stories to share? Oh, my goodness. It is the greatest portion of my 25-plus years of, 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 again, being in the trenches, as stated earlier, with the ebb and flow of the highs and lows of supporting cancer patients. But it is absolutely true, and it's difficult for individuals who have not walked that journey to mentally wrap their mind around this concept but I can say with confidence, and I have interviewed many of these folks, again, on my podcast, uh, who have articulated that they would have never signed up, obviously, and volunteered for cancer, but cancer ended up on the other side of the process when it was all said and done, being 
one of the best things that ever happened to them. And so I've coined the phrase, two things can be true at the same time. As bad as a cancer diagnosis can be, and I know what that is. I've experienced that. I've heard that. I've had to digest that within my own consciousness about myself. Um, when an individual is able to work through the seasons of difficulty and challenge and hardship and get to the other side of that, uh, there is fundamentally, by and large, an overwhelming experience, a testimony of people saying uh, that, that, that this was a blessing in disguise. As an example, I think I'll tell you a story of two people. Uh, one uh, young lady who is a school teacher, she lives in Iowa, uh, diagnosed, uh, had a pretty tough cancer, and um, she was reminded by her students that life is not a dress rehearsal. And she said that woke her up with regard to her disposition and attitude. And after working through, I believe, a couple of difficult surgeries and some, and some long-term treatment, uh, she and her husband sat down and got a vision. They lived on a farm. Uh, they had a lot of acreage of land, and she had a vision to plant, uh, I think it was two acres of an organic blueberry farm that to this day, now several years later, uh, is operational, that she says she could not believe how many people came from around her county, uh, heard her story, uh, wanted to buy blueberries from her, mm -hmm. and how that became a type of ministry. Uh, and she said that cancer exposed her superpowers, quote, unquote. And then I'm thinking of uh, a gentleman and a couple that lives in Hawaii, uh, wonderful folks, the Stewarts. And um, after losing uh, George Stewart and Jeannie Stewart, after George lost his first wife to cancer, and then later he became a cancer patient, he remarried, uh, went through our cancer care, our free cancer care training program, Our Journey of Hope, and uh, went back to his island of Hawaii and started his own cancer care ministry. And um, he was so impactful on his island that there was a cement company that basically took his logo of his cancer care ministry and put it on the drums of all of their trucks that would drive throughout the islands talking about if you have a, if you are a cancer patient, you need support, uh, please call this number. This is a group of people that'll reach out to you with gift baskets. Uh, they'll pro provide support to you and they're still going strong to this day. And uh, George attributes the fact, he said, one of the greatest things that ever came out of him experiencing loss of his wife and he also having a cancer journey is now his cancer care ministry that he serves, I think, three of the major islands uh, in Hawaii that he is now supporting cancer patients every day and making a difference in their lives. And I can give you story after story that is similar to that of how cancer patients championed their diagnosis, their treatment, their heartache, their pain, and it turned into a ministry that ended up being a blessing for them and not just for themselves, but a blessing for hundreds and thousands of others that they're making a difference in right now to this day. Wow, that's a powerful story and another strong reason to move to Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, that would, that's true, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah. And both yeah. are absolutely true. Yeah. Absolutely true. First, I got one more question. Um, so how can a community, like a church family, support the family of a cancer patient? Are, are there some things that help and some things that hurt? Yeah, and again, going back to, I, I'm going to sound like a, a broken record, but it's true. Uh, every local church should first invest in creating time and starting a cancer care ministry. Start okay. with our journey of hope, and start right off the bat and organize yourself. But for churches that have not organized and structured themselves around being trained on how to support cancer uh, patients and their caregivers, there are some things certainly you can do. 
uh, probably the biggest of is uh, find out what are some of the practical needs of a cancer patient and take care of them. In some cases, cancer patients are very proud. They will not ask. And so there are practical needs like their lawns may need to be cut or do some grocery shopping or offer to, you know, take the kids, you know, if you have a trustworthy relationship, you know, out on a, a night to give uh, the, the mom or dad or whoever the cancer patient is a break. Um, and we have a resource, actually, that now that I think about it, that I'm going to make available to your audience. It's called uh, Practical Needs of a Cancer Patient. You nice. can download that free of charge, and it gives a lot of suggestions and tips just like this, that if you do not have a cancer care ministry, you still can attend to some of the practical needs of a cancer patient. And you can find that at healthhopeandinspiration.com. Just look for the resource section. We have about 40 free resources that anyone can download anytime, and you can have access to that. And you can share that with your church. You can make copies of it and bless others Fantastic. on how to several things with yeah. regard to supporting patients. Percy, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a delight meeting you. The pleasure has been all mine. Thank you so much. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.